Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. There are some people who they give their life to the Lord and they spend the rest of their Christian life, the rest of their time, worrying about if they're really secure in the Lord. They're always thinking, oh, I blew it and now he's going to cast me off or he's going to forsake me or now he's going to punish me. Well, listen, God will discipline you. He says it's the proof you belong to him and it's the proof of his love. But he promised never to leave you, never to forsake you. If you belong to him, you will always be a child of God. In today's broadcast, we take up where we left off yesterday, starting in Luke chapter 13, verse 18, and we will be going through the end of the chapter. Now, this is part two of Pastor Sam's message, Repent or Perish, and we're considering Jesus's parables, specifically the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. We will finish with Jesus's discussion on what is the narrow way. So let's listen in. He moves from taking action to some parables and some exhortation. And, and these parables, they've basically been interpreted in two ways. First, we have the parable of the mustard seed, then the parable of the leaven. I'll read them both to you, then we'll talk about the two schools of interpretation. He said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to whom shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nestled in its branches. Again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it all was leaven. Now, the two approaches to this, well, one focuses on the invisible, spiritual, real kingdom of God. And it suggests those who are tracking this way, they suggest that, well, the mustard seed here is a good thing. It's like the gospel that gets sown and then it spreads and then gradually it spreads and spreads and spreads till it's spread everywhere and, and, and all the world is, has come to know the Lord. And the parable of the leaven following that mindset, it's the same thing. It's like leaven's in the kingdom of God. And so it gets hidden in the, the meal offering and then it spreads till it permeates all. Here's the problem is that I can't really see Jesus teaching us that. In fact, I think that this teaching, if you go back to the commentators, you'll see in the 18th and 19th century, the majority of people that were writing were, were post-millennial. In other words, they believed that the, the kingdom would be established on earth and then Jesus would return and, and you know, to this glorious kingdom. We're premillennial. What's the difference? Well, we believe the kingdom will be established, but not until Jesus returns to establish it. Is it a big difference? Oh, yeah, because the difference is either we're establishing the kingdom or he is going to establish the kingdom. And here's the thing. If we're to interpret this and say, OK, things are going to get better and better and better and the gospel's going to go and the world's going to all be converted and then the Lord will come. That's just contrary to what Jesus teaches in Matthew 24. It's contrary to what Paul teaches in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It's not what Daniel teaches. It's not what Ezekiel or Isaiah teach. It's not what Revelation teaches. It's not what Peter teaches in 1st and 2nd Peter. No, the reality is all of them, 1st and 2nd Timothy, they all teach the same thing, that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And unless those days were shortened, according to our Lord, no flesh would survive, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Well, what's the other uh, way to approach this? It's to see that he's talking about the kingdom of God that's visible, that's called the kingdom because this is where all the people who claim to be walking with or following after the king gather together. So, so here's the picture when he says it's like a mustard seed. Well, 
a mustard seed, smallest seed, planted in the garden here. It grows and becomes a large tree. Well, that's unnatural, you see. A mustard seed doesn't become a tree. It becomes a bush. So the first thing we have a picture of unnatural growth. And then it says the birds of the air nestled in its branches. That's not too good either. Here's why. Jesus in the parable of the sower said, when the seed, the truth, the gospel is being sown, immediately the enemy, Satan, comes and snatches up that seed. What's the image he uses for Satan coming? He says, the birds come and snatch away the good seed of the word. So it can't take root in the heart where it's being sown. So birds, if you track with all this, and the, the parable that Jesus says is the key to unlocking all the others, Matthew 13, go and check them out later, make a mental note or jot it down. He says, if you don't get this one, you're not going to get any of them because this is the key. If birds are, are evil in the first, they're going to be evil throughout. It's called expositional consistency. We're going to say, okay, Jesus says birds are evil. There, they're going to be evil as we go through. What about the parable of the leaven? Because I think Jesus is teaching the same lesson again and again for different people, for different audiences. He knows this is going to connect with this group. This illustration will connect with this group. He says, to what shall I like in the kingdom of God? And again, I'm of the, the mindset that he's talking about the visible kingdom where there are wheat and tares sown together, where there are sheep and goats meeting together. And only he can separate the wheat from the tare. Only he can separate the sheep from the goat. The, the real professor from the, the, the mere professor or the real possessor of Christ from the mere professor in Christ. But he says, what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Listen, Leviticus 2.11, and they would have been well aware of this. Jesus certainly was. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. Well, what's he saying? A woman hides the leaven. Leaven spreads and permeates the whole. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It's a warning. And so leaven in the Old Testament before the Passover had to be removed from every household. That's still true today, that, that practicing Orthodox Jews still remove all the yeast, all the leaven from their house before they celebrate the Passover. In the New Testament, well, we were warned last chapter about the leaven of the Pharisees. There's the leaven of the Sadducees. There's the leaven of Herod. There's the leaven of malice and wickedness again and again and again. He says, purge out the old leaven that, that you could be unleavened. And so I think these warnings are clear. He's saying the kingdom of God, that which we today would call, you know, the church. It's bigger than the church because it includes those, those who are Old Testament saints. You can read of them in Hebrews 11. They died in faith, looking forward to the cross. They're, they're a part of the, the kingdom, but... But they're still different than us. Israel isn't the church. The church isn't Israel. And, and, but all Israel who trust in, in the Messiah will be in heaven. All Christians, you know, looking back at the cross, that's a different. They look forward. We look back. Well, in, in any case, he goes on to, to apply all this as he's going through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. One said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Again, the question itself, let's suggest this is a mere curiosity. Hey, how many people do you think are going to be saved, Lord? It's going to be a lot of people. It's going to be a little people. And Jesus, and, and you just have to appreciate this. He says, let me tell you what really matters here. He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
They ask the question, someone does, hey, are there going to be a lot of people saved or a few saved? He says, you really ought to make sure you get saved. And that's his answer, you see. Now, again, there are two extremes here. There are some people who they give their life to the Lord and they spend the rest of their Christian life, the rest of their time, worrying about if they're really secure in the Lord. They're always thinking, oh, I blew it and now he's going to cast me off or he's going to forsake me or now he's going to punish me. Well, listen, God will discipline you. He says it's the proof you belong to him and it's the proof of his love. But he promised never to leave you, never to forsake you. If you belong to him, you will always be a child of God. And so you don't want to get caught up in this extreme. The other side of all of that is, is, is the person who just, you know, they're, they're secure in, in themselves, but they're, they're really not, you know, focused on anybody else. And so here, here's the thing. He wants us to first focus on ourselves, make sure we're in the faith, make our calling and election sure, strive to enter the narrow gate, repent lest you likewise perish. It's all these different ways of saying the same thing. And then he's saying, and then focus on others. I mean, once you know you're in Christ, once you're secure in Christ, it's all about other people. These guys are, are on the extreme out here where they're about others, but, but they haven't even secured themselves. And so the others are just a curiosity and they're living in that world that's not so important to the Lord because he sees eternity. He sees reality. He, by the way, is that narrow gate. No one comes to the Father but by him. The idea that he is the only way into the kingdom of God, he expresses it in so many different ways. He says he is the door of the sheepfold. It's one that they would have all grabbed hold of because they knew that, that those shepherds, when the weather was getting bad, they would try to find a cave and they would take a bunch of rocks and there are plenty of rocks in Israel. They're everywhere. And they would just build themselves an enclosure and they would leave an entrance so the sheep could go through the entrance. And then after they got all the sheep in for the night, they would lay in that entrance. They became the door. That's why he says he's the good shepherd. He's the door of the sheep. No one can come or, 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 or get out without him noticing. So the sheep were protected in that enclosure and the shepherd himself was the gate and the door. And when Jesus says here, enter in through the narrow gate, he's saying, you got to come through me or you won't come at all. He's the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but by him. He's the resurrection and the life. And so he's saying, make sure don't be worried about how many are saved. Make sure that you're saved. And once you are, then worry about how many will be saved, but not as a curiosity, but as a mission, preaching the gospel and living for Jesus. When the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, verse 25, and you began to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. This is a claim, by the way, to fellowship. The idea of eating and drinking with someone says, we had fellowship with you. I mean, we were there at the table. I mean, we were like this, Lord, we're hanging. And, 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 and he's saying, I don't know you. And they're going, but we fellowshiped with you. And then it says, and you taught in our streets. This is a claim to discipleship. We heard you teach. We remember what you said. Well, I'm not sure they acted on it, though. See, that's the problem. They're saying, hey, we fellowship with you and, and we're, we've been discipled by you. But he will say to them again, you don't want to even hear it once. You really don't want to hear it twice. I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And listen, you are either going to hear that or you're going to hear, well done, 
enter in to the joy of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. These are the two options. And by the way, each op option leads to a destination. Uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That joy will be experienced in his presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. We'll be with him in heaven. We'll return with him to the earth. We'll rule and reign with him during the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. But those who here depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, listen, Jesus separates the wheat from the tare, the sheep from the goat, the, the possessor from the mere professor. And, and that's really what's happening here. He's saying the day of judgment's going to come. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Now, if he means this literally, it suggests not only will people know that it's just and right that they got just what they deserved, but they'll see what they missed out on as they see the kingdom established and realize there's no place for them in the kingdom of God. And they'll come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first. There are first who will be last. Jesus will say this again. He's just saying the day of judgment is coming. Men who claim to know him, men and women who say, Lord, Lord, but it's not true that there is no relationship. He says they will be separated out. They won't be a part of the coming kingdom. The last first and the first last. It reminded me of a story Mike McIntosh taught, uh, shared some time back. And, and Mike's famous for his stories, by the way, if you're unfamiliar. They asked Billy Graham at one point, hey, if you knew you only had one more hour to live, what would you do? He said, I'd preach the gospel. And they asked Pastor Chuck, hey, if you knew you only had one more hour to live, what would you do? He says, I'd have a Bible study. And they asked Mike McIntosh, if you knew you only had one more hour to live, what would you do? He said, I'd tell stories. And uh but he's got a million of them. He does. And, and so if you haven't heard Mike on our radio station, get the, the, the list and tune in. He's an amazing communicator. But anyway, he tells a story, and it kind of tracks with this, that there's this taxi driver and this pastor, and they both die, and they find their way up to, to heaven there. And, you know, we have mansions awaiting us. So the pastor's right behind the taxi driver, and he sees him take the taxi driver down the street, and he's got this just radical, beautiful mansion. And he's, like, looking at that, and he's thinking, whoa, if taxi driver it's that. What do I got coming, you know? So they take him down another street and there's this modest little house. And he's like, what? Wait a minute. I'm confused. I mean, he drives a taxi and he gets the mansion and I serve you all my life and, and preach and teach for years and years. And, and I get this little house. Forget you should just be happy to be in heaven. But, but here's the deal. The Lord answers the, the question. He says, listen, when you preached, people slept. When he drove, people prayed. And so... <laughs> It's a performance thing, you see. Well, anyway, it's a lighthearted moment in the midst of a serious subject. So back to the serious part. On that very day, some Pharisees came, verse 31, saying to him, go and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what motivated these Pharisees to say this to Jesus, if they were warning him or they were trying to mess with him. It doesn't really make any difference. What matters is how Jesus responds. And I want to suggest that his response is directly related to the fact that he knew the time of his death 
the place of his death, the manner of his death was foreordained by the father. Do you know the Bible says there was an everlasting covenant between father and son. They had already determined he would come and save us from our sins. And so what happens is, is he knew the time because it was in the scriptures. He knew the place because he says it here. Hey, could a prophet perish outside Jerusalem? Or there actually were a few, but he knew not him. No, he had to suffer and die there. And then the manner, he told them again and again, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'll be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. I'll be crucified, but I'll rise again the third day. Jesus knew where and when and how he was going to die. So when he hears, hey, Herod's out to get you, he's like, so what? He has no power over me. He tells Pilate right to his face, you would have no authority over me unless it were given you from above. So Jesus is absolutely secure in the fact that he's not going to die one moment sooner than the Father has willed. And he knows he's going to die a painful, shameful, horrible, torturous death because you know Psalm 22, David writes it, but, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit goes from saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to describing in detail a crucifixion he never personally experiences. No, he's describing our Lord's crucifixion and at a time where there was no Wikipedia, there was no way to check it out, there was no crucifixion in the region that he was writing in. So there's no way he, he could have even understood all that he was writing, but, but he's writing and the Lord's speaking to him and, he's, and when the Lord's on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some have suggested he says it because he felt forsaken. I would suggest he was trying to point those at the foot of the cross to Psalm 22 so they could see the soldiers gambled for my clothing. They pierced my hands and feet that they could see this is prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. And the point is this. Jesus didn't just know he was going to the cross. He walked there willingly. No man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again, he says. This command I receive from my Father. Finally, we conclude the chapter with a revelation of Jesus' heart and then their hearts and then Jesus' judgment and his grace. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 34, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Here's the heart of Jesus. It's revealed in this lamentation. He knows that judgment is going to fall. And he's offering them a way to him, a way for forgiveness. He's calling them again and again to repentance, to judge themselves lest they be judged. He knows in 70 AD this prophecy will be fulfilled as Titus enters into the city and destroys the temple and, and murders, massacres, multitudes of the people, taking many others captive back to Rome where he can display them as the spoils of the battle. Jesus sees all that and what does he do? He weeps over the city and cries, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you. Listen, their hearts are revealed in these five words, but you were not willing. They are the last five words of verse 34. I, I want you to see it and, and let it sink in. It is so important. He doesn't say, as some would suggest, that, that he created some people for heaven and created others for hell, that he chose this group and disregarded that group. 
I know there are, are godly people who believe this and write about it and preach about it, but the reality is the scriptures could not be clearer. Jesus takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. All day long, I've held out my hands to a stubborn and rebellious people. He says, and you would not. It's not his will any perish, but all come to repentance. Why do they perish? He says it here in five words. You were not willing. He wanted to gather them. He wanted to redeem them. He wanted them to repent. He wanted to restore them, but they were not willing. You want to make sure that doesn't happen to you, that that doesn't describe you today. If you've never surrendered your life to him, you want to make sure you do. Their judgment was coming. Verse 35, he says, see your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, your house desolate, already made mention of it. It is a prophecy of coming judgment, the certainty of coming judgment. Unless you repent, Jesus began all this, you will likewise perish. Their judgment was certain, but there was an option. There was an opt out of judgment. He says, and here's the key word, you shall not see me until, until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His grace is demonstrated in this one word, until. In spite of their sin, in spite of their rejection, in spite of their judging of others, in spite of all of it, he still went to the cross and bled and died for their sin. And, and he's saying, judgment's gonna come, but, but there's still grace, there's still hope, there's still an option. Do you know that Ezekiel, 36, 37, 38, it, it prophesies the restoration of Israel. That's who he's talking to here, by the way. Prophesies in the last days he would one more time, having done it in the past and having done it, he, one more time he'll restore them to the land, physically first. And that's happened. And then spiritually, that's not yet happened. Their eyes haven't been opened. Do you know the Bible says, it tells us when it's gonna happen and how it's gonna happen, that Antichrist will come, they'll embrace him as the Christ. But halfway through the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, he will stand in the temple that he covenanted with them to, to allow the rebuilding of. He'll stand in the temple declaring that he's God, demanding that he be worshiped as God. And one of the consequences of that action by Antichrist is that their eyes, Israel's eyes will be opened. They realize this guy ain't the Christ. This is not the Savior. He is not the Messiah. God will open their eyes and multitudes of those in Israel will surrender their lives to Jesus, will come to know the true and living Savior. And, and, and so well, where the, does that leave us today? Well, he chose them to bear fruit. They didn't. He set them aside. He said, oh, well, we'll deal with you again. He's chosen us to bear fruit. It's the same deal. A fruitless fig tree, what good is it? And, and so today well, we can sit in judgment, not on each other, but on ourselves. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And I can evaluate my life and you can evaluate yours and say, is my life bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Am I someone who loves people more and loves God more than I ever did before? Is the joy of the Lord and the peace and the long suffering and the kindness and the goodness and, and all that comes with the, the work of the Spirit in our lives, is that being made manifest? And, and if not, then we can repent and we can say, Lord, come into my life or forgive me or restore me or, or have your way in me. In a recent study I was in, the pastor made a wonderful point. And he said that I have no problem with God giving us the free will to choose him and God being sovereign. 
I point this out as Pastor Sam mentioned that there are those who believe that God has appointed some to be saved and some to be condemned. Now there are scriptures that would support this, but you have to keep in mind that God is not only omniscient, that he knows all, but he also is omnipresent through all of time. So I would have you think of it this way. God knows each and every person he has ever created so well, he knows what their decision is going to be when it comes to rejecting him or accepting him before they even make it. But that doesn't stop him from giving everyone, even those who will reject him, every possible opportunity to accept him while they are still alive on this planet. Listen to what 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10 says. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.